0: Most of Australia's major cities take their names from the British. Lord Sydney was a British Home Secretary. Thomas Brisbane was a British Army Officer and Governor of New South Wales for four years in the 1820s. And then Adelaide, well, Queen Adelaide. But what about Melbourne? Do you even know? Uh, Dave Nichols is here to help us out. Uh, Dave. Hi. Ta-
2: ta- Hi. Hi, Dylan. Hello.
0: Um Tell us why you've taken an interest in the name Melbourne. Well,
2: for a number of reasons, but one was of course the move uh, late, late last year to change the name of the city of Moreland away from Moreland because it was named after a slave plantation, and which by the way is uh, a decision that I really endorse for two reasons. One, that um, it was a slave plantation and also that Moreland is just the worst name for anything ever, particularly a local government area. But... Um, I was sort of... It made me interested in um, Melbourne, Lord Melbourne. Uh, I, you've got to assume that the guy, you know, if if he was told we've named a little settlement on the other side of the world after you, Lord Melbourne, he, it barely registered. There's no um, apparent record of what he said to that. Um, and, you know, quite, quite clearly he couldn't have known it would grow to a, a huge city in uh, 200 years. But... Um, what I found interesting was that if you dig down a little bit on Lord Melbourne, um he was such a grub. he was he was a real stinker of an individual. And there's a lot of you know if we're going to, for instance, uh, look at the uh, the slave associations with Moreland, I think we need to look at the slave associations with Melbourne and a few other things like that that um you know it's a it's an interesting um it's an interesting thing for us to, us to think about, partly because I think it, it raises questions about, you know, when these names of places take on lives of their own, people get used to them and uh, you know, they uh don't really think about them anymore. But there is, as everyone listening will have noticed, there's a little move towards that I guess giving Melbourne a second name of NAM that's um, you know, uh, you know. I think there's there's politics involved with that as well, but um, it seems to be taking on, uh, getting a bit of purchase. And I was thinking of that particularly because I went to the um, the drone show at the Docklands. There was, I think, I think they did it, you know, every night for 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 a few weeks down at the Docklands. Anyway, they were doing it the night I was there, and um, uh, the 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 display, which was great and um, short, great, very exciting, ended with. You know, spelling out the letters RM not M E L B O U R N E, and this was something sponsored by the city of Melbourne. So I thought that was uh, an interesting sort of interesting aspect to to that whole thing. That there's kind of this move to, away from the the name Melbourne. Now I think embracing the name NAM would be a whole extra um, element. A, a problematic element, but still would be. Uh, it's an it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah,
1: I, I noticed as well because um, because I mean you see a lot of people in, in sort of the arts and music community acknowledging country and and, and mentioning NAM as part of that. But you also seem to be seeing it in these more official forums as well. I noticed that NBL team Melbourne United had changed the name on their Guernsey to NAM for Indigenous Rounds, so not right. permanently, but okay. but their team is Melbourne United and they yeah. had NAM emblazoned across the, their Guernsey. So it seems yeah. to be. Gaining currency, as you say, but but enlighten us. What are the the slave associations um, of Lord Melbourne?
2: Okay, so there's a few really unpleasant things about Lord Melbourne, and um, there's the slave one is probably the one. Well, that's the one that taps in the most to the Moreland controversy. Um, there are a few other things that I'd I'd like to expose. I mean, they're all they've all been known about <laughs> forever. But um, the uh, he was opposed to the. Um, uh, to ending of slavery in Britain. He believed that, um, I mean, it, it goes into the man's character. He, he basically didn't want to stir the pot in any way about anything. Um, he felt that um, slavery was an economic benefit. And uh, he was really resentful. And he's on record quite a few times talking about people bringing religion into public life. So, you know, their religion into public life. So he um, he thought that those who opposed slavery um had a religious impulse you know that that just didn't belong when it when in the world of economics and as far as he was concerned um you know slavery wasn't broke so no one needed to fix it and uh, so clearly he was a supporter of 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 slavery as an institution uh so there's so there's that that aspect i mean you know at, surely that's at least as bad as Moreland. i i, I would say i mean that's, so that's one thing. Um, it, in general, he was he was a classic conservative prime minister in that he um, he just didn't want it. He just didn't want things to change, and he didn't. He uh, so he had that very um, uh, unple- things that he felt were unpleasant or thought were unpleasant. He didn't want to think about. He said, "Why would you w- want to think about um, uh, problematic things?" So he didn't want to know about the the state the. Um, the state that the poor were in in Britain in the early uh, 19th century, because he found it unpleasant and depressing. So he, you know, he was. I suppose the only impressive thing is that he would just he just tell people things like this. He would just say, look, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to take any notice of that because you know it's dreary and and um, you know unpleasant to contemplate. So you know, um, how about I do something um, that I like? And um, he um, also, and this is. I hesitate to bring this up because it it feels like a little like kink shaming but it taps into something else as well um, he He really liked um to well i don't know to whip women so that's that's whatever um, but he also believed he believed very much in um, so corporal punishment as a kind of a character building thing so he he would his family would um, get um, adopt orphans. Uh, and he would beat them. And he. Um,
0: <laughs> and this is all on the public record. I mean, look you totally. know, whipping in any form is, is you know, confronting. And I, yeah. I just think that this is all on the public record. And then if it is like that, it is, Dave, how come um, Melbourne was named Melbourne then after. Well, he
2: was a respected man of his time. Yeah. Um, and.
0: Uh, and is there any sort of was documentation a, a, around why, you know, lord melbourne was was chosen for? no but
2: i think your i mean your point sydney was you know lord sydney was a home secretary right mm-hmm. uh, melbourne served that function as well for mm-hmm. a while when he wasn't being prime minister right so. place at the right time yeah i mean he was also in the early uh tenure of queen victoria he was uh, apparently a a mentor to her and, a, and an an advi- a trusted advisor to victoria so uh, I imagine that there's some aspect of that, his uh, close relationship with her and her fond feelings for him. Um, no, nothing on the record about him, um, you know, whipping her. But um, the, um, so there's a kind of, um, I guess, in, in some senses, carrying favour with the Queen as well to uh, to name a place after. Well, we've man. seen
0: some places renamed, like the, the King Leopold Rangers were, were renamed, Wanamara in milwundi rangers in wa like we have seen when the unpleasant Mm. or um, confronting backgrounds or or slave support of Mm. of um, figures from history have come to light or people have re-looked at them and that was always on the record and and re-looked at them and said we don't want our local areas Mm. named Mm. after people like this we actually have other names that we could be using. Let's not even
2: start on the Australian place names with the N-word in them.
0: Well, there's all of that. And we've spoken about that on Mm. on this show with different people that have studied it, Mm. um, Mm. um, Aboriginal people who have just keep raising naming of buildings and like there's just so many examples of where names are powerful and they, they show, sure. they demonstrate values and we can change them. But I just think, um, you know, it, it doesn't feel good hearing this history about no. Lord mm. Melbourne, does it? No, not
2: I at mean, all. The thing is that Melbourne had, I mean, he, he clearly had no input or interest in, in this, the city that we now live in. I mean, he was it was nothing to him as far as we can tell. So on that front, it's not like, well... You know, uh, if Brisbane was the was the governor of um, Queensland for X amount of time, then then that's actually there's some involvement there. But you know, you could imagine that Lord Melbourne would be hard place to to find this place on a map in his day. Mm. So um, so there's those you know that kind of aspect of it. It's really just a, a a silly little frippery legacy of of the past. I mean, the main question is, of course, when uh, I noticed on. Um, There's a Facebook group that I'm a uh, passive observer to. It's a very popular group, particularly with older people. Uh, Someone brought up Southern Cross Station. And the amount of the fury that comes through in the comments about... I will never call it Southern Cross Station as far as I'm concerned. It's Spencer Street Station, always has been, always will be. You know, I went there with my mother in 1958. (laughs) She wouldn't wouldn't believe what's happened to Melbourne today. So there's those those kinds of, um, you know, people really resist a change. Yeah. Uh, people resist all But you can
0: rename things. Like I was thinking, you know, there's the Bombay to Mumbai change. I mean, major cities can change names. And I guess, you know, we're not the forum here to just discuss or put forward what, what, you know, Melbourne would otherwise be known as because, you know, there's, there's ways that these things work themselves out and get decided. But, it it actually has happened.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, the the Moreland change that came about, I understand, from the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung elders and, and other community leaders asking council to consider renaming it, which it mm. then sort of, you know, passed a motion, mm. and, and they moved to do that. But, I mean, the, the council had only been called Moreland since 1994, I think, following right. amalgamation, yeah. so it doesn't have that long of a history, and I don't think there's many sort of emotional attachments exactly. to Moreland, but Melbourne think- has been known as Melbourne. It's like the
2: Melbourne- Australia Day, um, you know, controversy. It's like this great tradition that's I can't remember when it's you know Australia day came around the slowly, same time I think yeah uh,
1: I
0: think there's yeah. an attachment to the People's Republic of Moreland. Uh-huh. That, yeah. that's funny yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: but is, funny it, is, is it harder when a city has been known as officially as Melbourne for so yeah. long and you can imagine there would be that kind of
2: resistance just oh. from people who don't like change they don't oh. like things of sort course of they would. being of different. course there would and there's but you know there's that whole I mean you know, as a historian, I see it as absolute confusion about what what constitutes history. Um, but uh, you know, I noticed even in the last week, um, people talking about um, Pu- Putin trying to reverse history by invading the Ukraine, which, of course, is not what he's doing. I mean, in the in the blander sense, he's making history. He's not reversing history. But um, there's so there's those kinds of questions about whether whether a name, a commemorative name, is is a historical, you know, document um, rather than just just the knowledge that something used to be called something and now it's called something else for reasons, you know, that are about, I suppose, about aspirations of the sort of place that we want to live in, the sort of community we want to be.
0: And I, I've also noticed that there is, you know, a lot of discussion and people changing the way that um, the capital city of Ukraine is pronounced. There's Kiev, which, mm. you know, is the local pronunciation, Kiev, which is another pronunciation, and, and that being... a political. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, maybe this happens all the time but I was I've really noticed that one mm. that it is the way the pronoun- to pronounce it, that capital city's name now is yeah. is political. Yeah,
2: and that's respect. Yeah. Yeah,
0: and respectful yeah. Yeah. and yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean there's one thing that I will say about Lord Melbourne and the the city of Melbourne. I mean Melbourne has not that, not that it's recognized a hell of a lot, but Melbourne has a really significant place to play in the history of uh, labor power in the West, you know, the birthplace of the eight-hour day, and and so on, and Melbourne, Lord Melbourne, um, in his time, I think, as Home Secretary, he um, he actually um, ordered the execution of a striking Welsh miner in um, in the 1830s uh, on the basis of well, we're going to have to set an example. The, the The guy clearly didn't do what he was accused of, but we've just got to. You know, it was actually about the most decisive thing that uh, Melbourne ever did in his life, as far as I can tell. Was he? Uh, he went out to to make sure that somebody got hanged for a crime they didn't do, um, for political reasons. Well, you know, there's a there's a there's a kind of um, an irony in that that you know now his name is attached to a place that has this um, you know really um, uh, important role to play in the history of uh, you know unions and um, and that kind of uh, that kind of you know, labour history in, uh, in, the, in the Western world. Yeah, know.
0: and and you know a progressive city with
2: exactly the name
0: of Lord yeah. Melbourne, where by all reports of what you just said is yeah. um yeah so we could irony. enjoy
2: the fact that he would have hated he would <laughs> hate Melbourne he'd hate he'd say take my name off it please
3: <laughs> oh okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> and and what about the, the coexistence of names
1: or sort of unofficial names because they are gaining much more currency and and I mean you mentioned a few Kalia and and official um you know areas that have been renamed as well but there's also Aotearoa for, for New Zealand and it's becoming yeah. much more common so that sort of coexistence seems like it's, it's here to stay for a, for a while yet yeah, what do you make of that about how we 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 kind of how history evolves and how yeah. our understanding yeah. of places and naming of places well, evolves
2: uh, I mean yeah I mean it's a really really fascinating um, thing to think about and it's you know um, I think it is a lot about you know I uh, I guess you just got to have a mind... I would say people need to have a mind shift or at least consider that, you know, do we name things for... Well, A, do we keep original names for things? Um, B, obviously Melbourne wasn't the original name for this place anyway. But, um, you know, do we keep these established names uh, because they, they're they there, they exist, and, you know, they're etched in, in granite in a few places? or Or do we, you know, think about the future and where we want to be rather than where, where we have been. Uh, and, you know, the New Zealand example uh, is, is a fascinating one and I think that's, you know, clearly... Once again, New Zealand, what a terrible name for a, for a country, for a great country. Um, that, you know, that, that really... And that is also, you know, similar to uh, changing this city's name away from Melbourne maybe towards Nam or something. Um, shows a bit of respect for, uh, for the original inhabitants... So that's another another aspect to it that I think uh, deserves to be considered. But it's um you know, of course it's much too big a topic to than than we can cover right now, but I think it's uh it's a great thing to think about.
1: Well and you might have kick started a movement, Dave. You just enlightened so. everyone I hope about Lord so. Melbourne. I hope
2: so.
0: Inspired by the fireworks of Docklands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we'll see you again in a month. Okay. Um Dave Nichols pops by in Studio this morning. Very nice to see you, Dave, Um, Senior Lecturer in Urban Planning at the University of Melbourne.
4: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science,
5: technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
1: Since the AFLW launched, a constant talking point has been player wages, which generally dwarf those of professional male players. This, of course, puts a lot of pressure on AFLW players, as many have to hold down other jobs while also being expected to perform at the top level. This October, the collective bargaining agreement for both the men and women's leagues is set to expire, and according to Melbourne Demons player Libby Birch, this offers a perfect opportunity to negotiate a joint CBA for both men and women players for the the first time and uh, we're very happy to have Libby on the line fresh from a sterling performance to down at the ruse on the weekend hey Libby welcome to triple R
6: oh thanks for having me
1: congrats on on the win first up how important was that for your season
6: yeah it's huge we've had a really big week uh, this week we had Brisbane Lions on Monday night at Gold Coast and uh, we we managed to, to topple the, the reigning premiers and then the kangaroos as well on the weekend was really important as well the first six rounds we had sort of the bottom six sides that we were playing against so to sort of show our stuff against some of the top sides is what we're after
1: yeah and into the, the top two at the business end of the season which must be a really nice feeling as well but um onto this issue of player wages so i mean clearly there's a disparity in pay between the aflw and aflm how do you see that that conversation evolving as we approach the end point of the current cba
6: yeah I think it's really important to start the conversation and to get it. that's the reason why I wrote the article is I think uh, and what I've been loving about writing these pieces is it just whether it's whether I'm right or wrong or indifferent, the conversation just needs to be started and we need to get um, more conversations going from an industry level but also from an audience point of view. and conversations like this are really important. and uh, I think for us, it's about growing, continuing to grow the game. And with 18 teams next year, it's, it's almost... Uh, the competition is complete for the first time. And uh, we've been steadily growing our wages over the past couple of years. But because of this opportunity, for the first time in history, that we have this opportunity to join our CBA with the Ben, it's an opportunity for us to, to really... Uh, I guess grow the pool in how we um, contribute and d- like give wages to, to players. So I think it is it is a perfect time to be talking about this.
0: Yeah, and as you say, it's a conversation starter. And then you've written an a- um, article for the AFLW website, which I read, and uh, and it's. Yes, it's really you can't cover a whole range of different issues there, and all of them are compelling in different ways. And I guess it'd be good to sort of talk about other other codes because we we do have really established uh, women's competitions in in cricket, for example, and and this is the kind of path that's been taken in in cricket in Australia that the kind of. If, if not joint negotiation, definitely reference to each other in negotiating for um, for wages and also conditions. Can you talk a little bit about that,
6: Libby? Yeah, so a, a few years ago, both uh, CBAs for the well, collective bargaining agreements for uh, cricket were up for, for female and for males. And the males actually, uh, the male cricketers actually went on a semi-strike or, or a semi, uh, they were fighting for the women to, to join their CBA or to join a collective CBA Uh, which meant that there was a bigger pool of of money that could be shared around for the players, but also meant that everything could come together. So broadcast deals with uh, television rights, uh, you know, sponsorships, everything could come together. And the result of that was that it could be equal pay for regardless of gender. Now, I know that Cricket Australia and the Australian team have uh, obviously a a huge reduction in the number of players because there's only two teams involved in that. But that is just an example of how uh, we, it can, we can come together as both male and female players to both, uh, I guess, organise a way that we can talk to our industry to make sure that we get a fair and equitable... Uh, result at the end of the collective bargaining agreement
1: and and you've written sort of an article about this to to really um, you know sort of push that conversation along but how much responsibility is there do you think on male players and I guess particularly those with a large platform who might have regular media commitments to to keep this issue in the public domain to make sure there is much more sort of equity across both leagues
6: yeah well I think that was the main point of my article in that we have over the past few years the I guess the the shining light has been left to too few male players to sort of really promote the game and I would like to see and I think it should be an expectation that all male players um, you know contribute to the game in a way that really celebrates the women and and that side of the game and I think that it's just, As I said, I think Patrick Dainterfield, Dustin Martin, Ben Brown, Jordan Ruffhead have done a really good job over the past few years to really incorporate themselves in the game. But it's going to take a lot more than that for us to to get any growth. And I think they have such a huge platform and sometimes they don't even realise how much of a pool they have uh, in the industry. And I think that, yeah, it should be an expectation that they are supporting us.
0: And, I mean, what sort of support currently exists across the two competitions, Libby? You talk about some of those real um, male advocates for the, the female game there, but it, within clubs, like within your club, within other clubs, is there a lot happening between um, the two competitions?
6: Unfortunately, due to COVID over the past two years, it's come in a really awful time because I would say that we were gathering momentum at the start of 2020 of integration between male and female players within clubs. And then due to the fact that COVID has, has come along, that's kind of halted proceedings in the way that, I guess, both male and female uh, parts to a club have been separated very much for the fact of COVID safety. Uh, but I think now's the time again, now that we're coming out of that two years of hell, <laughs> we, uh, we can start to reintegrate and um, join in and, and support each other from a club level. And honestly, I think that if we are going to get you know, a collective bargaining agreement that is, you know, equitable for, for all. It really does start from the players and what the players want. And it can't, you know, our relationship can't just start on the negotiation table per se. It needs to be a consistent, uh, transparent relationship that the public eye also sees in that we support each other and uh, our games.
1: Speaking with Libby Birch, AFLW Demons player, who has been writing a a series of articles for AFL Women's and and The Age as well, and speaking about one of those, um, which is called Come On Boys, Join the Push For, a historic joint CBA. And and I noted that the head of the AFL Players Association, Paul Marsh, has expressed kind of optimism for the negotiation of a joint CBA and said that they would like the AFLW to be considered a a professional full-time job by 2026. What's your sense? of of that timeline is that kind of soon enough
6: yeah i think uh it it is it is good to have that conversation of a timeline because over the last few years we haven't yet had a vision for aflw and uh, over the past few months the afl has brought out a vision and the vision is not only for what they see the players doing but how the game's going to grow out to a wider audience and and sponsorship and money involved and things like that i think 2026 is still a long way away and i think And as players, we're always continuing to push for more. And I believe that if you push for more now, it's going to happen sooner rather than later. And that's why these conversations need to happen, because ideally 2026 is a long way away and our players are under a lot of stress. Uh, And I know in the introduction that you, you both brought up, you know, we are working full time and, and competing at the highest level and, Uh, it does put a lot of strain on players and mental health and and their families and work-life balance and things like that. So I think the sooner uh, we can get there, the better.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you've just named some of those challenges if you're working... Full time and also working part time as an elite athlete. I mean, there, I know that others have expressed it. There's concerns around injury and a whole range of things that come with people performing at such a high level without the ability to um, be a full time athlete all, all year round. Can you speak a little bit more to that, Libby, about you know some of those challenges that that um, AFLW players have to navigate, trying to be and, and actually being at that elite level.
6: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I I think uh, one thing that really does uh, not annoy me, but but get me, is that uh, you know our male players get uh, you know that's their full time job to be an athlete. They go in every day at at a reasonable hour and and complete their job, get paid well, and then are obviously expected to perform at the highest standard, which is completely understandable. Uh, For female athletes, a completely different story. We leave the house at a normal working hour, go and work hours at our usual job, I'm a physio. And then at the end of the day at 4 o'clock we drive to training and we don't leave training until 10 p.m. Uh, and then we have to start the day uh, the next day and do it all again. And we're, we're only contracted three or four uh, days a week, uh, or not days, or just hours in fact, so I think it's about 20 20. 25 hours a week Uh, and then we're expected to play in searing hot conditions over summer and it's very very challenging for all of us and we're traveling with COVID understandably uh, the schedule's changing as well so people are forced to change their working uh, environments as well and uh, their employees are asked to do the same so I think yeah, it, it's in order to get the best products, we need to continue to work on how we look after our athletes first and foremost.
1: Absolutely and, and I mean the, the AFLW has been such a, a positive story since the years it launched both you know for fans and, and players as well but it feels like those sorts of issues that you've just spoken about are only kind of going to get exacerbated the, the more that the league is, um, is I suppose professionalised without athletes necessarily being considered professional athletes because I mean next year there's an 18 team league that suggests the season might be longer and at the moment um, as you say you're still playing in, in searing heat so those kinds of issues, um, you know, might even become become worse, b- before they get better, if there isn't a, a proper kind of CBA negotiated, um, as you've suggested.
6: Yeah, yeah, I think uh, we have some amazing leaders within the AFLW community, and our players are, are very passionate and uh, committed to making this. Uh, a terrific environment for all the young girls coming through. So I have no doubt that we are in a good spot to to ask for what we want and, and hopefully get what we want. Uh, but in saying that, I think this year's success and the footy that we've seen has been absolutely incredible considering the amount of stress that uh, all the players have been under. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen numerous articles Alongside mine of, of some of the things the players are going
0: through. Yeah, and I mean it makes me think also that that AFLW has attracted enormous talent, um, even from other um, sporting codes, from basketball and others, where those players could have international opportunities to travel, but but are playing here in Australia. And I, I wonder um, to, to think about the, the role modelling that could come out of a CBA, um, a collective agreement like this, where the the Aussie rules. The Australian game actually provides equal pay um, whether you're AFLW or AFL men. What what sort of role modelling do you think that might play if any um, Libby?
6: Yeah I think that we have such an important role off the field to, to really show the Australian public and our I guess our fan base what we want to stand for and what we want our game to stand for and I think Cricket Australia did that really well. The act of both female and male players standing together as one as not uh, I guess not separated by gender, but the fact that they were cricket players meant that it showed, you know, the rest of Australia and what they wanted to stand for. And that was equality and that no one's different based on gender. So I think that stance is, is important uh, when we get to that point of equality, I think it, it does, it matters, but it doesn't really matter. I think what, what really matters is what we want to do as a collective player. Uh, group is, do we want to stand together and, and stand for equality? And I think that that's, that's the most important thing here.
1: Yes, speaking a lot of sense, Libby. And um, before we let you go, you've got Frio coming up next week. They're sort of right below you on the ladder, breathing down your necks. Um, how important is that match and, um, and how confident are you going into it?
6: Oh, it's huge. It's a huge match. We fly uh, to Perth on Friday Friday night and we come back on Sunday with our match on Saturday And the most exciting part about this trip is that we get to play at Optus Stadium. So that'll be a life-changing, a life moment for all of us. I think one that we can tell our grandkids later in life that we played at Optus Stadium because I heard it's a fantastic uh, uh, place to play footy. So we're really excited by the opportunity.
1: Yeah, we'll enjoy it and, um, and best of luck with the match. Thanks heaps.
6: Awesome. Thank you so
1: much. Thanks, Libby. Libby Birch there, player with the Melbourne Demons AFLW team and um, speaking about an article that she's written, which you can read on the AFLW website. It's all about um, the push for a joint um, collective bargaining agreement between both the men's and women's leagues at the professional level of the AFL.
2: Triple
0: Ah. And it's great to have Scott Ludlam back with us. Um, Somehow last year in amongst the lockdowns, he came into our studios for a conversation about his book, Full Circle. This time we've invited him on to speak about his work with the Australian Democracy Network, exploring how corporate interests have eroded Australia's democracy and what can be done about it. Uh, Scott, it's lovely to have you there. Welcome. Welcome back.
4: It's nice to be back.
0: And yeah, a lot's been written and said right now about democracy. Um, this is you know because of Trump, because of Putin, of course, right now, um, and you 've been studying the health of australia 's democracy um, where Where did you start with your inquiries?
4: To be honest, it started with some of the stuff I experienced when I was working in the Senate, where you can kind of see firsthand how democratic processes are manipulated by lobbyists. And by people with access to huge amounts of money, um, and I kind of continued along those threads when I was researching the book. So I think we t- we even touched on some of this last year when when I was in the studio. Came across this concept of state capture in when I was in South Africa as a as a kind of a thing that happens along the slide between democracy and oligarchy. And I guess while we're thinking about oligarchies and petrostates, it is kind of sharply relevant for us to consider how corrupting of democracy
1: um, industry can be when you give it a free hand. And the, the concept of state capture seems to have been sort of more widely circulated in relation to Australian politics in recent years, but but it feels like it's something that, that maybe people might have expected happens to other places, perhaps democracies that aren't quite as developed or, you know, you might say advanced as Australia's. Um, why is it that it's kind of caught on more recently, do you think?
4: I think it just – the name is helpful. I found it helpful anyway as a hook to hang on this phenomenon that we're dealing with, which is obviously much more systematic and more serious than corruption but less entrenched, if you like, than oligarchy. We still do have the ability to have this conversation in relative safety. We can organise. We can get people elected. We can get stories up in the media. We've got tools and we've got the ability to take action – but we're clearly dealing with something that's much more entrenched than ordinary corruption. I think the fact that we're hearing more about state capture is that people are getting the sense that this is a distinct stage that can occur um, when heavy industry is given the reins of power. It's self-reinforcing, which is one of the things that makes it so dangerous.
0: And what are the most concerning trends? I don't know if that's the right word to use, but, um, you know, what are the sort of concerning trends that you observe, Scott?
4: I think it's stuff that everybody's familiar with. Hey, so what we've just done um, with the Australian Democracy Network, a team of us have put together a report called "Confronting State Capture," and that lays out the concerns. And if you if you go to the Australian Democracy Network's website, you'll see it. My guess is you will you'll find it immediately familiar. It's the stuff that is kind of the bread and butter of of concern about democracy. It's lobbyists. It's saturation media coverage of industry positions. It's Clive Palmer spending up to $100 million on an election campaign. It's virtually unregulated donations regime into political parties with floods of dark money that are unattributable. It's all of those things, but it's how they operate in combination for very powerful economic actors to work somewhat behind the scenes and somewhat out in the open to capture political parties and political cultures whole. That's what we're dealing with.
1: And I suppose you, you would have had a particular insight into this during your many years in the Senate. But as a, as a problem, as a, as a really significant issue for democracy, do you think it has got worse over the years?
4: It's got much worse. And i I was in Parliament at the kind of hinge point where we were working with crossbenchers and independents and the Labor Party, you know, Julie Gillard and Greg Combe, Bob Brown and Christine Milne sitting together in a room working out how to build the Clean Energy Act, that's, that's an example of the opposite of state capture. That's a majority of a parliament working to wind back the power of, of the resources sector and the coal and the oil and gas industries uh, in, in a very premeditated and careful way. And we saw what happened. There was an enormous character assassination campaign unleashed on Julia Gillard, and Tony Abbott was installed with these enormous tailwinds by the Murdoch press and the resources sector, and those are the people that still are in government today. What's different, of course, is that a lot of the fight has been scrubbed out of the Labor Party. They're not proposing anything on climate change that would threaten the interests of the coal or the oil and gas sectors. And so now the money flows roughly equally from from the fossil fuel companies into Labor, uh, which is pretty heavily favoured by the gas lobby, and into the coalition, which is just a wholly owned creature of the coal industry these days. That's what's dangerous and it's why we need to elect more people who aren't on that payroll when the next federal election rolls around because what the fossil fuel companies have done is created political insurance. Where even if there is a change of government, they're still going to hold the numbers. That's dangerous, and that's what we mean by state capture.
0: Uh, you've raised so many things there that I'd love to ask you about, but let me just go to this one. I mean, we. Heard... I could
4: talk about this all day. Oh, I know, so. I <laughs> could tell, but. Um,
0: uh, but- you know, if we go to some of the proposals that we we know haven't been dealt with in this term of parliament, um, around you know the federal ICAC donations um, reform, including real time disclosure, some of these proposals. But we, we also saw, um, you know, we're seeing the rise of of inter- Independence and and certainly like Climate 200 plus of funding sort of um, independent campaigns, community campaigns. Um, We saw straight away attacks go to Zali Stegall um, with what happened with regards to disclosing donations there. Can you sort of unpack how you see that um, all coming together, Scott? Because there are a lot of issues, but we do, in some ways, uh, independence coming through are. Helen Haynes is an example, really shining bright lights in places where we do need reform. Um, But how how do you see the role of of independence, I guess, with the context I just sort of put forth?
4: I think it's a really healthy sign, to be honest, and particularly that they're contesting a lot of seats that the Liberals would be very uncomfortable, um, that they would, you know, these are people and electorates that have been taken for granted, that if you put You put a moderate-looking Liberal into Parliament, they're going to be voting with Barnaby Joyce 100% of the time. So I think, you know, anything that looks like it's people-powered and that is challenging the incumbency of fossil fuel corporations is healthy. You've got the Greens who have been in there doing this work for nearly 30 years um, and... What I'm hoping will happen is we'll see a repeat, but even, you know, in a much stronger sense, giving this mood for change at the next federal election that the crossbench is filled up with a larger Greens presence and a lot of these climate-focused independents, uh, and that we take up Labor on on its offer of a national ICAC. took them a long time to get on board, but they're there now, and that we can start to roll some of these things back. So I think, you know, all of these trends are encouraging. All I would do, though, is just... For, for me, the issue that blew up with Zali a couple of weeks ago really underscores the fact that we need very broad-based reform so everybody's playing on a level playing field. One of the things that the Australian Democracy Network has proposed and has been working on for a couple of years is this framework for a fair democracy that says rather than cherry-picking a little reform here or there, here's the package, you know, like extreme caps on donations to political parties and... Um, Truth in advertising, a national ICAC, uh, serious calling off period so that people can't just go straight off and become lobbyists in industries that they were that they were formally regulating, and really have a go at it in a broad-based way. So the agenda is there, the policy work has been done. Now we just have to to increase the presence in parliament of people who aren't taking money from these industries.
1: Well, it makes a lot of sense. Speaking with Scott Ludlam about a piece he's written, um, recently written for the monthly called The Scourge of State Capture, and it kind of brings together some work he's been doing with the Australian Democracy Network. As you just you just heard, they've sort of outlined a range of proposals for how we can strengthen our democracy and make it better and, and address this issue of state capture. And to go to just one of those points you raised, Scott, because we are in, in an election year, I mean, both for you know, federally and, and here in Victoria, there's a a state election coming up. Um, The the issue of uh, misleading the public in election campaigns, because it's not, uh, you know, companies aren't able to mislead the public when advertising certain products, yet politicians or um, aspirational politicians can do so in the types of campaigns they wage. And we see this all the time if you think about the sort of MediScare campaign or or some of the claims that Clive Palmer's made as part of his sort of very large um, political campaigns in the past. Um, Do you have any? concerns about what those sorts of lies, what the consequences of those sorts of lies might be at, at the upcoming election?
4: Well, well, definitely. And, you know, our kind of media space is, is swamped, just to pick one example, in climate disinformation, um, including by some of the largest mastheads in the, in the country. So it's large and small. There's distributed disinformation that is occurring on social media. And then there's the real large scale stuff that Murdoch and Sky uh, broadcasting day after day, so it's extremely concerning. And there's there's two broad ways you can deal with it. Neither of them simple, unfortunately. One is yes, you can legislate for truth in political advertising in the same way as um, as you know trade practices are regulated in Australia that you can't knowingly um, deceive people about a commercial product. And the other is to is to pop the money bubble and make it much harder to fund. Campaigns, particularly when elections roll around, so part of what makes it dangerous is how well resourced it is. So we can attack it from both ends.
0: And we do have, you know, some pillars, I guess, in place. I mean, the Australian Electoral Commission, um, Victorian Electoral Commission, are, are, are examples of that. But I mean, what are some of the green shoots, if any, that you can see, uh, Scott, with regards to enhancing democracy rather than the the, the opposite of of state capture?
4: I think the green shoots are everywhere. The trick is to to be able to remind ourselves that we're all on the same team. One of the approaches that we took in this study and in work that the um, Human Rights Law Center has done recently on tobacco and on the alcohol industries and gambling and so on, is that we're we're whether we're concerned about climate or human rights or land rights or any of the other, you know, campaigns that people are working on is to be aware that we're all facing um, common adversaries, and that these reforms and fighting back and getting, getting people with fresh ideas elected to parliament who aren't beholden to these interest groups helps all of us. So I, I do see green shoots everywhere, whether it's in um, the work that's being done in parliament, the work that civil society organizations all over the place are doing, the fact that the idea is catching on. Um, we just have to make the most of it now.
1: And I mean, your, your book that we spoke to you about last year was all about people power, really, about about how you can sort of constructively get involved in, in political causes that, that you care about. And, and as you say, I think some of the, the issues that are raised um, in the, the report that we've been speaking about aren't really a surprise. You know, it's things like the sort of revolving door of politicians into into um, organisations and companies and sectors that have had a, a strong relationship with government in the past and, you know, the COVID-19 commission being stacked with gas interests, um, uh, for example. I mean, there's there's examples everywhere. But but what do you think are sort of tangible things that the ordinary person can do to to continue to rally for change on some of these things?
4: I think there's – I've got two answers for that. And one is that in an election, you get this unique opportunity to shuffle the numbers and to weaken the institutional power of some of these industries by simply not voting for them and by, by taking good care with who you do vote for. And taking advantage of the fact that we have preferential voting that you can number in order of your preference and that is not a wasted vote. So that's the first thing. In an election campaign, get out and support candidates who aren't taking money from these industries is the most important thing. The second thing is, and this is the, the caution of state capture, is to understand that they, are, they have enormous incumbency and deep pockets and a lot of political power. And after we've done the best we can in the election, or that infrastructure of state capture will all still be there. So one of the things we talk about a lot in the report is is raising the costs for the entities doing the capturing, uh, and that's that's tactics as diverse as you can possibly imagine, um, getting Woodside kicked out of sponsorship of the Fringe Festival or the fact that um, institutions in Australia and overseas are, are severing themselves from fossil fuel sponsorship. Um paying attention to just how fast the renewable energy revolution is taking pace now, like anything that we can do to weaken their economic power is is again, it's another pebble on the stack, you know, it just increases the pressure on these incumbents and at some point they're going to give way
0: Can we take you to sort of the international issues, Scott, while we've got you and ask about your role as ICAN ambassador and ICAN um, for those, I mean, we've spoken to ICAN many times on this program, but is leading the movement for Australia to end its disarmament um, um, uh, work and also to sign and ratify the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And look, it's an intense time globally and um, we've got a nuclear power invading uh, and I haven't actually heard many people talk about a president pushing a, a red button for a while until the weekend. Uh, I mean, what, what do you see as, as the threat here? I mean, are you, you know, just from that position of I, I can ambassador, how real is the threat at the moment with regards to having a nuclear armed state um, invading?
4: I th- I don't think there's any doubt in anybody's minds. If there was any doubt, uh, Mr. Putin has clarified over the last 48 hours by putting Russian nuclear forces on high alert. Russia is the largest deployed nuclear weapon state in the world. And what he's done, particularly in the context of war in Eastern Europe, Is reminded us that that nuclear weapons aren't about deterrence at all. They are about the threat of unleashing genocidal violence on civilian populations. They have been since the 1940s. So I think what is happening there now is going to remind people everywhere, including in so-called nuclear umbrella states like Australia, that the only protection we have against nuclear weapons is in their abolition. Either they're abolished or one day some lunatic is going to use them. There's no in-between. There's no grey area. Now, Australia in the past has played a saboteur role in trying to disrupt uh, the the negotiations that led to the Nuclear Ban Treaty. The alternate Prime Minister um, and the Labor Party, as far as I'm still aware, is proposes to sign the Nuclear Ban Treaty. And so the, the campaign of ICANN is to make sure that all parliamentarians in the next parliament are willing to put Australia's signature on that document. And in the meantime to urge a ceasefire and urge an end to the violence in Ukraine.
1: And do you imagine that this sort of current crisis, what's unfolding and, and you know, what, what will happen there, which is you know, really terrifying to think about, will, will alter those kinds of conversations and, and the thoughts in the minds of the ALP about signing up to the, the nuclear ban treaty?
4: No, I hope it consolidates their position. Mm. Um, It's a position that Anthony Albanese himself led at the National Conference a couple of years back. And I don't think anything that's unfolding in Europe at the moment would be uh, making people feel that nuclear weapons are a good idea. You know, this, again, is a nightmare scenario unfolding. We may have precious little time to stand these weapons down before they're used. So I, I hope that anybody rational or with any kind of heart who's watching events unfold in Europe at the moment... Um, would take that as confirmation that these weapons have to be abolished as soon as possible.
0: Scott, you spent quite a bit of time with us this morning. It's um, really good to have you back on Triple R and on that sobering thought. Um, we'll take our leave and also hopefully um, speak to you again um, in the near future. Triple R on FM, digital,
6: online, and via the app.
1: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Springtime is the new outfit featuring Gareth Lydiard of The Drones and TFS, Chris Abrahams from The Necks and Jim White, whose extensive catalogue involves work, of course, with The Dirty Threes, Loris White and collaborations with Cat Power, Bill Callahan, and many, many others over the years. The group, Springtime, is set to release a follow-up EP to 2021's self-titled album in a couple of days and they're also hitting the road for a whole bunch of shows, including here in Melbourne. And to chat all things Springtime, we're very happy to be joined on the line by the one and only King of the Sticks, Jim White. Jim, how are you going?
5: Hi, Dylan. I'm good, thank you.
0: Well, just commenting, um, your timing is impeccable, um, as you'd expect from a drummer um, ringing in. Thanks for being there, Jim. It's um, yeah, great to have you.
1: Thanks, Katia. <laughs> called us right on cue. Um, so, so give us the, the origin of springtime. Who called who and suggested that the three of you getting to do, together would be a good idea?
5: Um, Gareth... Uh... Wrote to Chris and I, you know, before COVID, and sort of, you know, asked if we were interested in the idea, and then um, and we, we talked about it and we were, and then kind of, and then during COVID, it, uh, we tried to get together, but Chris was stuck in Sydney and we were down. Uh, Gaz was in outside of Melbourne and I was here, so um, you know, Gaz and I were just sitting around in our houses, like stuck, and we started playing together. Um, when the opportunity arose, and then there was a moment when Chris could get out and we created the band that fortnight. So we just, you know, it was one of those windows, so we just got a rehearsal room. We booked a couple of shows at the Brunswick Ballroom. We didn't have a name. Um, We got the songs together and we did the shows and then we went straight into recording um, at Gaz and Fiona's place up in... In the, the Gamby. and uh, so the whole thing came then. Yeah. That was, I guess, last year, maybe.
0: And and did you know when, at the beginnings of it, in conversations, what it would be?
5: No. We just thought it was going to be open, there's going to be the three of us, and, you know, and, and, and we'd work out. We'd, uh, I mean, I can't speak for them what they thought, but, um, you know, the idea is I understood it that we would start and we would see, you know. And it didn't, it you know, it's, it's revealing itself now. So we made the album, you know, the album came out really good, so we put it out, and um, and then we we tried to get some shows that got cancelled and stuff like that. And then uh, and yeah, it's, and now now we've only just started playing. Now we just did uh, Sydney and Brisbane, and we made a new single or EP which is coming out, which has come out I think yesterday or the day before, which. I love um, the first song released off it is called "The Names of the Plague." And uh, have you guys got that yet?
1: Uh, we do. Yeah, I'm going to play that one off the off the back of our chat. I reckon because it's a it's an amazing tune.
5: Excellent. Yeah, I love it. So yeah. So then we just so you know you know it's a band. So it's going kind of, to it, you know it feels like a, a the thing I was really happy with is that it we started it and it felt like a. Thing quickly you know what I mean like straight away' uh, especially playing those shows at Br- in Brunswick and um, we'll see what happens but yeah it's it's really it was really fun playing the shows uh, well fun playing those shows when we we just got the, made the songs up and got them together and before we recorded and but it was now we just did see these shows and yeah it was really went really
1: well yeah fantastic and and how much do you reckon the the outfit will evolve as as you do more shows because i mean as you say it sounds like it it all came together pretty quickly and you you would have had a lot of sort of um i'm sure cancellations and and false starts with with tours over the journey as well you've just had a a couple of shows in sydney and brisbane too do you sort of feel like that the act is is still sort of taking shape the more that you play live
5: yeah definitely yeah so both in um like, we're playing these songs, we're playing the record, you know, we're playing the, the new single. And um, it's totally, it started off really, you know, it came out of the box really good, really happy with it. Um, it's going to develop a lot, I think. And um, probably, probably perfectly developed to Wednesday at the Recital Centre.
0: I mean what were the shows like in in Sydney and Brisbane? I mean I was thinking you you're so fortunate to play Brisbane in the last couple of days because they're going through a, a flood crisis as we as we speak which is you know full on. But yeah, what were the what were the shows like? What were the crowds like?
5: Um yeah, also well, we went to Sydney to rehearse up there. It didn't stop raining the whole time we were in Sydney for a few days and then in Brisbane and yet like really it didn't stop raining the whole time. We you know, I don't know how. I don't really know what's going on. Like, it felt to me like people were happy, really happy to be. At, I felt really happy to be in the room with people playing, and I felt that was the same for people. I, you know, it's hard to know what everyone's experience is, but um, yeah, it felt really good. And you know, I hadn't played since. Uh, I think the next and tropical fuckstorm had just played not long ago, but I hadn't played since. I hadn't played live since. Uh, sort Of late, middle of last year, something where I did some shows with Ed Cooper. Um, but I went back to America where I spent a lot of time, and and I did some recording, but all the shows over there were cancelled. I was supposed to go to Scandinavia and stuff, so yeah, it was really felt really great. Um, like an event, you know, an event for me playing music again, and then you know, it was the sound was really good, and like to sit on this, you know, I could really hear how it's going to develop with you know, it really struck me like, oh, wow, like Chris, hearing Chris so clearly, um, Chris, Chris Abrams, the piano player, it's so beautiful and, um, you know, the songs worked and I could see that there was a lot of room to, you know, go for it and also be calm and, uh, yeah, really, really, uh, you know, for me, I mean, all the, when you do something new, it's like, yeah, you're finding out, it's funny sometimes you talk about these things and you, you you know you don't really know what they are until they happen and that mm. I think that's good you know yeah. I think that's that feels exciting to me for a concert you know.
1: Yeah, totally. There's such a nice sort of complementary mix in, in the music between your drumming and, and you know, Gaz's sort of, um, you know, distorted guitar and then the really gentle keys as well, which can lend itself to sort of some art some sombre tracks like the Viaduct Love Suicide, but also the really raucous stuff um, such as the Names of the Plague, which we'll, we'll play, um, play in a moment. But, I mean, I imagine you would have shared quite a few bills with, um, with you know, Gareth Lydia, the Drones and the like, and, and also the next over the years. But had you had you done much actual collaborating and, and sort of playing together um, before now?
5: With those two, no. Uh, you know, I've known, you know, I've certainly known the people from the drones for a long time and, get, like, doing shows together with Dirty Three and the Drones, like in Europe or, um, and, like, Tropical Fuckstorm, who I, you know, really love. Mm. Uh, and sort White did a show together, you know, here at the corner, not, you know... Not long ago before COVID, I guess. Um, but no, and Chris, who I'm, I've seen the next play many times, and I've met Chris over the years at each other's shows and stuff, but never played with him. So no.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, what attracts you to collaborate with people, Jim? I mean, Dylan read out at the beginning of so many collaborations you've been involved with over the years in, in Australia, but also internationally. You know, what, what, kind of gets you interested in one, one project versus another one?
3: Well, each,
5: each one's a separate question. Um, you know, I think of myself, I've got an echo now, um, I think of myself as a, uh, like, making bands like Venom P. Stinger and Dirty Three and all, but even those two are different, like Dirty Three Fallen to play in a bar and, you know, Warren and I and Mick had all played together a lot before. Beneficent, it was kind of like an idea that I had that coincided with presumably the ideas other people had as well, right? Mm. And then sometimes um, sometimes I get asked to do things, sometimes I instigate things. And each one's got its own story, you know? Yeah. And what what, what attracts, I guess, what attracts me is if I can... Get involved somehow, it doesn't feel like I'm doing the same thing. I've got an idea or an approach, or I think I might have something to get that to that, you know? Um. Yeah, oh, the echo's kind of,
1: kind of bad. Yeah, is, is it still if still troubling you, is it? I'm not sure what we can do to to fix
5: That's that. right, we'll just keep talking. Okay.
0: <laughs> no one else can hear it but you, which is sort of cruel but kind okay. of also good because That's it right. means that we can hear everything you're saying. Yeah, everyone out well. there
1: can can hear you loud and clear without an echo, um, which which is a good thing. Yeah,
5: but so um, this, so I didn't know. I, this one, I mean, I didn't... It was interesting because Gareth, you know, approached and then I talked to Chris because, like... I, like I, I really like the idea and I love this is playing I, I, I felt like we could do something to shore and I, but I love, you were talking about uh, them before, just a minute ago and really what Gareth is like so catchy and so you know, so lively, I it, feel like a great combination you know, mm. I didn't think about it too much I thought we'll just try it, you know
1: yeah, it immediately kind of makes makes sense um, to me when when I heard about the three of you working together. But on the, sort of this collaboration and working with, with Ed Cooper for those shows last year as well, which by all accounts went went really well for those who I know who went, got you know said they were amazing. Did the I mean, it's interesting to hear that this project was was at least sort of spawned before. COVID before the lockdown, but did the experience of sort of, um, you know, being being locked down mean that that you did things differently or, or forge collaborations such as with Ed or, or did things with Springtime differently than, than might have happened otherwise?
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether we would have all been in the same place if it wasn't for COVID. And um, Ed, the Ed Cooper one like, came about, which is, you know, one for me that's like, so I, live, I normally live in America. I was back here, and um, I go way back. Like Ed Cooper in Life and Laughing Clowns and The Saints is how I learned to play music, um, playing with them. So and Ed rang me up and he said, "You know, I hear you're stuck in Australia. If there's a moment you want to do something," and I'm like, "You know, fuck yeah!" And then, in a way, it's to me it's really positive that these two things happened during COVID. Um, I also learned to record drums for the first time in my life, like during that curfew time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, is that where you are?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that, that it came out of being locked down and, and being in the same place, um, which is a, a silver lining from COVID that we, we can all take. There aren't, aren't too many of them.
5: Um, you know, and it's really practical too. Like, I mean, you know, Gaz and I started playing some duo shows. We played in Melbourne and Castle, Maine. In Sydney, in a moment, in a COVID moment, um, and that's just like you know, we do. All three of us are very much live musicians, you know. Like that's that's how. Like I don't know. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like I'm a musician. Like it's like what I do. Like we People say I've done that much stuff, but, you know, I've been playing a long time and I'm interested in stuff and mm. I, I see it all as a continuum and different aspects of the same thing. Um, I totally don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Um, I've been lucky enough that I can think of an idea and bring it to fruition or, you know, not, most most things I do I don't take any money off anyone beforehand so we don't have to put it out. So if we try and get together in a casual, in a... In a minimal way, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then we see if it's real, you know, and then we take it out into the world.
1: Yeah, and I suppose that's why there's there's quality there, isn't there? Because you're road testing it, you're seeing what works and seeing what, what you're passionate about as well.
5: Yeah, hopefully,
3: yeah.
0: So, um, I mean, we've got you here now, Jim, and you've got these shows um, coming up this week and midst of a tour, but um, are you likely to spend more time in Australia now, do you think? Is that is that um, on the cards well, or...?
5: Yeah, well, you know, there's, there's always things going on in my life to bring back to, to Australia as well, but also um, these things are developed now, so Ed and I are going to play some more shows. Um, I think Rising Festival has asked me it's going to bring over some other people to, that I collaborate with. So, yeah, I know I, really, I, I always come back. I always spend time in Australia, but, yeah, it does feel like at the moment... This sort of creative thing has come out of being here for
1: that time. Yeah, fantastic. And and I was was reading an article in um in the Good Weekend just this weekend. Gone. You were you know chowing down on some pretty delicious food over over at Movita And um oh, did, yeah. the article did mention that there's a, a dirty three-album in the can that um that might appear at some point. Um, do you know when that that might present itself to us?
5: Yeah, that's an album that we're all really happy with. We just um, we haven't got a date yet, but it will come out.
1: Yeah. Fantastic, and um, and you've got a whole bunch of shows coming up. So we've got uh, Melbourne Recital Centre, Castle Main, Minion, as well. Have you got any springtime shows sort of booked or, or slated beyond, um, beyond this current run? No,
3: we've
5: got the three in Victoria and Canberra and Adelaide, and uh, I think Perth got cancelled because of this stuff. But um, no, we're talking about doing some shows in Europe later in the year. See yeah, how that goes.
1: Yeah, fantastic. Well, fingers crossed, and um, it's been great having you on on Triple R once again. Always a, a pleasure to chat to you, Jim, and um, and best of luck with those shows.
5: Thanks so much, Dylan.
1: Cheers. Have
0: fun. See you, Jim. Bye.
1: That is Jim White, who is one third of Springtime, his uh, relatively new project with Gareth Lydiard and Chris Abraham's. Um, they've uh, just released a, a brand new EP, um, which uh, yeah, you can get in all the usual places um, and we're going to take a track from that one now. I should mention as well those shows where you can catch springtime because that's um, that's uh, something you can go and do now. You can go and, go and see gigs. Uh, they're playing at the Recital Centre this Wednesday, Castlemaine Theatre Royal on Thursday, then down at Menion Town Hall on Friday. So a few really exciting looking gigs this week and then travelling up to Canberra, Adelaide and Perth beyond that as well. And um, we will take a track from the brand new EP from springtime. This one is the name names of the plague and it's a it's a bit of a long one so settle in Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.